Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialist, Giles Gale, Jan Lavruzzi, and our special guest, co-head of G10FX Strategy, and our resident oil expert, Brian Dangerfield. Uh, I was going to start with Brian, but I'm sorry, Brian, the ECB has bumped you off the top spot and we've got loads to get through this week, so I'm going to go straight to you, Giles. Um, we had um, a, a hawkish surprise, I would say, from the ECB today. Um, what were your main takeaways from what Lagarde announced? Right, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pretty hawkish yeah, message overall, and uh, certainly a surprise. I think, yeah, certainly to us, and judging by the market reaction, I would say also to most in the market. Um, you know, honestly, coming into this, we didn't really know. Um, you know, I mean, clearly there are. It's hard to remember a more uncertain time for policymakers, right? And uh, I think it was very clear from the way that she answered the questions, uh, particularly about, you know, there's always questions about what's their unanimity, how were people thinking, you know, what was the discussion like in the room? It sounded like it was an utter cacophony. And, um, you know, it must have been very difficult to, to, to control. Now, ultimately, what did we get? Well, you know, they have accelerated, she you know, she backpedaled when you know, pressed on you know, the, the, this idea of acceleration. She doesn't like this uh, this expression, but clearly they accelerated the QE taper. Okay, they're setting themselves up for the possibility, at least. Not you know, they haven't said that they're going to do this. Data dependent, as always. Nonetheless, they can now clearly end QE in at the end of June. Uh, the quid pro quo, to a certain extent, because. Those who watch the ECB closely uh, will know, <laughs> hopefully that's most of our listeners, um, will know that there was always this close link between when they were going to end asset purchases and when they start, were going to start raising rates. Okay? And previously, they've always described that period as being short, essentially. All right? Largely, I think, to stop us from assuming that they were going to end QE too soon. Right, but that's kind of been that logic kind of been turned on its head. What we got, what so they got rid of that. All right, I guess because they didn't want people to assume that they were necessarily setting up for a rate hike too soon after the earliest possible end to QE. Right, markets broadly have ignored that. I would say they focused no, rightly, rightly so on the faster taper, but um, no, they pretty much ignored the this change in forward guidance and just gone right ahead and said, right, no, they, they they're going to get going. They've got a lot to do. They're going to get going as soon as possible. So we've had a big sell off in front end. Um, now we've got about what seventy percent probability of a twenty five basis point rate hike for July, and. You know, much higher than that for September, obviously, and nearly two rate, uh, rate hikes priced in for December. So you know, that is plausible. I mean, it could happen. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it's unlikely. So I think markets have overshot there. Um, then you know, I think looking forward to next year, um, there's 100 basis points. You know, basically, the pace is now seen as a quarter per quarter from the ECB over the, over the next year. I also think that is possible, but probably too much. 
What about further out the curve then? So you think that the market reaction at the front end to today's news is a little bit overdone. I'd say the other um, puzzling or, or more interesting move to discuss is, well, the lack of move at the long end, really. You know, the long end has remained pretty well supported. At the t- We're recording this literally just after the press conference, but at the time of the recording, kind of 30 bund yields are maybe three basis points higher when we're talking about, uh, you know, the front ends being 13. So so what do you make of that? And and is is that go with, or do you think that markets should, act, the curve should actually be much steeper than, than we're seeing right now? Yeah, I mean, basically the the long end seem. I mean, it, it's not that it, it hasn't rallied. I mean, it's it's all of a very small amount, but you know, we're talking you know, three or four basis points compared to front ends, you know, sort of fifteen or so. Um, no, I don't think that's right. I do think that the end of QE is much more of a story. I, you know, I've, I've always believed that the squeeze at the long end is you know, very, it's, it's largely due to, to, to quantitative easing. I mean, you only have to look at some of the, the estimates that the ECB publishes from time to time about the, the scarcity of, um, of bonds from, from the major government issuers uh, to, 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 to see that. Um, and, uh, it, it seems like the market is in uh, is in a mood really just to see everything as reasonably good news for the for the long end. You, know, you have more QE, more support for the long end. You have you know, uh, a faster taper, policy mistake, long end rally. Yeah, um, and it's so now that that may be. I mean, I'm that that may be part of it. You know, sort of trying to. Rationalize the the move. It could also just be that you know, the players who are active in the long end don't react immediately. Whereas you've got the hedge funds all coming in and you know, selling the, the the front end because uh, you know, that's their favorite theme, really. So you know, it, it could just be a timing question as well. I guess just to round out the market reaction then from today's ECB before we move on to other European meetings that are happening over the next few days. Um, uh, what about periphery spreads then, you know, regular listeners and, and readers of our research will know that we've been uh, well more bullish than consensus, I guess, for the past couple of months on BTP spreads. But we did highlight in our ECB preview the risks, you know, two spreads of, of the ECB being more hawkish and, and even just this kind of open-ended flexibility um, being negative for, for periphery spreads. And obviously the, the knee-jerk reaction that, that we have had has been, has been wider. Um, where do you see those going from here? I mean, I think we have to just dial back our conviction quite a bit on on, on this for the time being because I think that a faster loss of um, uh, of the support through quantitative easing is, you know, I mean, it's, if, if nothing else, it's a significant um, uncertainty. Uh, I mean, we've always tended to emphasise you know, the positives on the political side, the uh, the, the fact that actually. You know, the, the the fundamentals that you would normally look at when assessing a, a sovereign credit actually look fairly solid. Um, you know, I think that this is you know, this is something which enough people will assume is a negative that it's you know, it's it's going to be difficult to, to see that come uh, come significantly tight in the short term. So I think we'll just uh, monitor that one. Let's say. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, okay, so moving on from the ECB then, because monetary policy really is not the only game in town this week. Um, we obviously have the uh, meeting of the European Council today uh, and tomorrow as well. Um, what are you 
what are you kind of what's the main expectation from this meeting are euro bonds a go do you think do you think that this is something that the uh, european governments can all get on board with or is this more of a pipe dream for, for further down the line perhaps listen um i i don't think expectations are that high that um that we will have an announcement that yes we've agreed for to a new program of um euro bonds to to fund the military and to fund <laughs> um, the energy transition or anything like that. You know, I, I mean, those are things which will clearly be put on the table um, by um, well, by the French, uh, most notably. And they, you know, but we know that there is a lot of pushback from the usual candidates. I mean, in particular, the Hanseatic League, uh, you know, led by I suppose the Dutch. To a certain extent, the Germans. Um, no. Is there a, is, is there some kind of agreement that could happen you know, that we could see in coming months? Um, no, I, I, I think I think there, there may well be, um, but I, I don't think that that is something that we're necessarily looking for uh, now. Yeah, okay, fair enough. All right, then with that, let's move over to the Fed because um, back to monetary policy, uh, that's obviously going to be in focus next week. Jan, you've been given a little bit of breathing space today. Normally we jump on recording straight after the inflation, US inflation print on a Thursday, uh, but the ECB has allowed you a little bit of time. Uh, but before we get into today's inflation print, perhaps you can just remind listeners of what your base case is um, for the Fed meeting next week, particularly, I suppose, in the context of, uh, you know, the, the invasion of Ukraine, given the fact that uh, really since this has happened, most of the major central banks have, have been in blackout periods. So it's been difficult to, to kind of gauge an updated view um, from many central bank speakers over the past week or so. So this is, the, this is going to be the meeting where the Fed actually kicks it off. We start tightening policy now, which uh, as market is most likely rightfully pricing, we are going to get a rate hike. Chair Powell made it pretty clear, uh, 25 basis points coming in March. Uh, and even before the blackout period, we kind of had a little background on the Ukraine invasion. So that was a known unknown, let's say, and I don't think anything has changed from then uh, to, to deviate them from that path. Anything outside of that, uh, no hike would be a massive uh, surprise to the market. Similarly, a 50 base point hike would be a very, very hawkish shift. Uh, on top of that, we expect the Fed to communicate uh, that they are going to keep lifting rates over the next several meetings. So that would probably, that implies uh, hike in, in March, hike in May, hike in June, possibly in July to, to kind of uh, present it to Fed watchers, and then see that they're going to evaluate from there on. Uh, hawkish scenario that we could envision would be the Fed opening up the discussion again for potentially outsized hikes later on in the year. That could be, I mean, given where inflation expectations have moved since uh, since the blackout period, even that could be necessary. But it might. It's not in our base case just because the growth uncertainties around Ukraine have really built up. Um, in addition to that, it's a quarterly meeting, so we're going to get uh, the economic forecasts, including the dot plot. We expect to see a shift in the dot plot, now showing five hikes for this year, up from three, the median to show five hikes for this year, up from three uh, from the December meeting. And also, we think next year is going to show only two now, down from three, 
and they were likely to keep the long run average unchanged at two and a half percent. That's still, uh, we have been discussing the possibility that they might up the long run average, but that might be later on in the year, particularly if inflation remains stubbornly high, uh, they, they might have to readjust that to something like 3%, but that's not this meeting's business. Um, so now we were officially done with uh, Q, well, tapering is finished. We had the last purchase uh, this week. So uh, now it's time to talk about how to unwind that right after that. Uh, they're likely to give us a little bit more details in the balance sheet. Uh, we could get the addendum where they could discuss the, the specifics around the, uh, around the process of how they're planning to run the balance sheet, but not announce it quite yet. We still think main meeting is going to be the, the one where they uh, formally kick it off and then let the balance sheet rundown start in June. Um, alongside the balance sheet rundown, of course, there has been a lot of volatility in the front end markets that they're going to have to address. That will most likely fall for the Q&A section where the chair is going to get questions on the widening in front end spreads. Uh, is there something that the Fed has to, has to do to you know, help the markets? Uh, we think most likely the answer there is going to be not really. They have the facilities needed in place. They have the standing repo facility. They have the, the FEMA for, uh, for foreign central banks to, uh, to borrow dollars if they need it. So they have backstops in place that they've implemented and they haven't been tapped. So uh, volatility has been high in front ends, yeah, but it hasn't spiraled out of control. And they're going to, they're likely to outline that. And additionally, they have to, and this is where we could actually see a, a dovish shift, which after today seems a little less likely, but they could uh, talk about the, the financial conditions and the Ukraine invasion, of course, and you know, the impact on growth, uh, put growth a little bit higher on the risk dashboard, closer to inflation, and also discuss that financial conditions have already tightened their index, the general, just like our, uh, the index that we use in-house, they all show that financial conditions are now uh, significantly tighter just because of the you know, equity markets have corrected a little bit, the currency moves, the, uh, the spreads tightening, uh, yields moving up on forward guidance. So even before they start reacting, uh, there's a little bit forward looking tightening that is being uh, priced into the market. And they might highlight that it really is going to be a fine balance how much they focus on that versus how much they focus on uh, we need to act, we need to go, and we need to tame inflation because, I mean, we, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but, you know, it, it came high and it's going to, it's likely to come high next month again, given the change in energy prices. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, that brings me nicely onto my next question, which is how much has today really influenced how you're thinking about the Fed next week? And when I say today, I guess that's a kind of a two-pronged question in that, A, we're thinking about the ECB, who, you know, we'd been thinking might be slightly more dovish, and, and we knew that they'd want to retain this optionality, but we thought perhaps the negative impact on growth, certainly in the near term, might be more concerning to them than significantly higher inflation numbers. And obviously, they, they were, as Giles has been through, they were more hawkish than we thought. And then B, um, uh, given the inflation print that we just had, which was, I guess, in line with expectations, but as you say, still still very high and, and signaling that, that it's still going to be high for, for months to come. So perhaps if you take that in kind of two parts, one, the ECB, and then two, um, US inflation today. Yeah, right. Um, so from the ECB, there's a, I guess there's two different ways to approach this, because uh, the first one is the ECB has a lot more direct exposure to, uh, to the conflict, so they're both geographically and economically. So it is 
kind of understandable that the ECB would be a little more uh, aggressive when it comes to monetary policy with respect to the changes in, uh, in prices. But on the other hand, the ECB has been significantly more dovish than the Fed for a long, long time. So uh, does that set a little bit of a bar for the Fed to, to surpass? I think so. I think, uh, I think that is a good assumption to make. So the, all that means that the, the skew towards any dovish delivery from the Fed hasn't completely disappeared, but it looks very, very faint now. Uh, on the other hand, they could uh, highlight that inflation is the number one focus and similar to the ECB that they are worried about the price impact, even though it could be, you know, the, the price increase in commodity prices will be transitory by their nature of uh, boom and bust cycles. But still, they, they can say we are kind of worried that price pressures were building up and this is not going to be uh, this is this is not something we're going to tolerate just in case it kind of sticks to inflation expectations. And with that, to kind of slide into the inflation discussion. Uh, so we got 7.9% year in year, and that isn't coming from you know two and a half percent. That's coming from seven and a half percent. So inflation was already really, really high. Uh, today came in bang on consensus, uh, which is already high. And uh, th this only thing that I think this can do is one, remind the Fed that that should be their focus. They are doing very well with their uh, unemployment mandate and kind of like the growth side of the picture. Uh, but inflation is certainly broad-based. Uh, we had, especially uh, the gasoline component was jumped like 6.6%. And that's before we, we get the March uh, commodity price increases. So next month is going to be even, even more difficult, which uh, could influence how the FOMC officials submit their forecasts uh, could influence how the, the chair reacts during the press conference. So both of those things, uh, in our view, should push the Fed to be to lean a little bit more hawkish. It's a lot of words for us to say the Fed's going to be more hawkish than that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. We like words. And it gives me a perfect segue to bring Brian into the conversation uh, to talk about, uh, I guess, uh, oil and, and energy markets. Uh, perhaps you could just... I guess, give us an overview of, of where we're at and, and what's the latest in, in yeah, latest state of play in, in oil and energy markets and, and how you see this playing out. Sure. Thank you very much for having me. So just to give a backdrop, um, before the invasion, the outlook for oil and energy prices was already quite bullish. You had a backdrop of supply that was relatively limited compared to demand, which was seen as um, continuing to accelerate based on strong growth and reopening of the global economy. And so you had the supply demand dynamic that was already bullish. And then you added into this a significant upside risk to prices from the potential loss of supply because of the invasion. Now, um, the sanctions that have come on Russia until recently had generally been skewed to try and avoid any sort of disruptions to energy. Now, over the weekend, that is when that changed, when the US and the UK in particular started talking openly about the possibility of banning, banning Russian oil imports. Um, that really set off the first time when the possibility of really losing or being, the market being forced to find an alternative source of energy from Russia really came onto the picture. And so what we saw on Monday was a significant surge in energy prices and global commodity prices really that the moves higher in energy were seen across a number of commodities. You saw it in metals prices, you saw it in food prices and wheat, for example. Um, since then, 
we have had the US and the UK have taken action to move away from Russian oil imports. Uh, but the, e the EU, excuse me, has not taken that step. And I think that speaks to the difference in exposure. And the market took that as potentially a sign that maybe the EU isn't ready to take this step. If we think about what happened with SWIFT a couple of weeks back, the US and the UK were on board, the EU was more hesitant, but ultimately the EU came on board with that idea, maybe being influenced by the wider global picture. The same playbook could have played out in energy, but so far it has not. Clearly we know that there are significant linkages, um, direct linkages, exposure to Russian energy that are a very clear consideration. And you know, we just talked about how the European Central Bank is in a bind, but you know, continue to move on a hawkish path. Certainly the energy picture and the impact on inflation plays a role uh, in that. So the market sees the difference in opinion, uh, the difference in reaction with the EU and the US. And I think that's helped push energy prices off of their peak levels seen on Monday. Uh, but we still remain in an extremely volatile period. Um, and you know, the, on, the, the best case scenario for lower oil prices and the best case scenario really for the world would be the end of the war, the end of the conflict. Uh, but to the extent that that looks like it can't be a near term you know, if that can't be a near-term possibility, then we're likely going to be in an environment where oil price volatility and energy price volatility remains a significant feature and risk for markets. So you, you've talked about, I guess, price volatility, but obviously within the context of still being in very high price regime. So what options does the West really have on the table for trying to kind of reduce that surge in energy prices? Where are we at with um those kind of options so there is no real replacement for russia it is one of the largest energy producers and exporters in the world there is no country or group of countries with enough spare capacity to completely replace russia and the net result of that is higher prices and we have seen that um, that's perhaps not a surprise to hear uh, but the us and global leaders have been saying repeatedly that they're trying to take steps to mitigate these price increases. So far, those have not come to fruition. I'll touch on a few that have been either considered or have happened. The first one is releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the SPR. So a number of nations have strategic reserves four times like this that they can release to the market to try and relieve near-term stress. This has been done. We've actually seen two reserve releases uh, in the past four months um, relating to oil prices. Um, but in both cases, the, re the response in prices has been muted. And you know, the real reason why these have not had a big impact is because oil being taken out of storage facilities can't replace oil being extracted from the ground. Now, there's a limit to how much you can draw down supplies coming from uh, reserves, whereas actual extraction activities can provide an increase in barrels on a much more sustained basis. So SPR releases are by nature, they are temporary. They're not intended to be long-term solutions. And the market is really looking for a long-term solution. On that front, we need to talk about increasing production. And the next big option on the table for the, the, for the US and the West is putting significant pressure on OPEC to increase production. Um, they've been very slowly, but gradually increasing supply quotas. Um, if you recall back during the height of the pandemic, they cut production quotas dramatically and have been only slowly returning that to the market. That's been a big factor in the higher oil prices we've seen really in the pre-Ukraine invasion period was that OPEC was slow playing the recovery in global demand, generally remaining very conservative. 
what we have seen so far in the immediate aftermath is that OPEC has not come to the rescue. They have not rushed in. Um, and I think this makes sense for a couple of reasons. Number one, most OPEC nations have actually struggled to meet the more modest production quota increases that they've been getting over the past uh, year. That's for a number of reasons. Some nations are struggling with conflict, you know, and oil is not immune from the supply chain issues that plague, you know, the world, whether it be labor shortages, part shortages, um, all of these shortages feed into each other and oil is no exception. So OPEC countries have not been able to meet even the smaller increases in production that have been allowed under the agreements. The idea that a surge in production can come and really bail out the world um, is less likely in an environment where they haven't even been able to meet these more modest increases. The other consideration is that OPEC has an open relationship with Russia as part of OPEC plus. So they've been openly coordinating since 2016. And so that has been, um, it's been a fractious relationship at times. Remember oil prices went negative at times last year because Saudi Arabia and Russia were feuding over their pandemic response. But, you know, there's been differences of opinion, but this has been a relationship that has been more or less stable uh, for the last several years. And so OPEC has an important political decision to make, which is, do you risk the longer term coordination with Russia, which is, you know, certainly being pushed out of, you know, pushed away from global markets, but is still a, a very large energy producer? Do you risk that relationship in order to shore up your relationship with key buyers and, and, and Western stakeholders? And so I think that's been part of the reason why the response from OPEC has been slow. Number one, they don't really have the spare capacity. And number two, the, pol the politics are not as obvious as it might seem. Uh, just looking at the, the wider picture, you say, oh, oil prices are really high. Shouldn't they be pumping more? There's more to that decision than simply trying to take advantage um, of higher prices. Lastly, I just want to make one quick reference to the possibility of alternate sources of supply coming from Venezuela and Iran. The same politics that overplay the, Saudi, the, uh, the OPEC question are part of those discussions as well. Russia is a partner in the Iran deal negotiations. It feels like this is going to add an extra wrinkle into those talks. Will Russia, will Russian negotiators allow a deal to get done that is, you know, being done in an environment where the West is trying to get more Iranian oil to supplant um, Russian oil and use that to put more pressure on the Russian regime? Is that something that they're going to be willing to essentially allow, or is that something they're going to lobby against? That adds complications to that picture. There's other complications as well, but that's a big one more recently. Venezuela is very similar. Russia is one of their biggest allies on the global stage. Um, yeah, you know, Venezuela, the Maduro regime cozying up to the West um, and shunning their, their largest ally on the global stage, Russia, uh, is something that's not something that can be done easily and not something that can, can be done in a vacuum. So the West does have options. None of them are perfect. There is no perfect replacement. And I think we've seen that oil prices have moved higher and we, we will be at the mercy of um, headlines and will be at the uh, at the mercy of the direction of the conflict from here. I think we're all hoping that the direction is toward peace and that the direction can be towards lower oil prices. But if that's you know if we continue on a uh, you know on a worse path, we're going to continue. I think to see high oil market volatility and we're going to stay in this higher price regime. Yeah, thank you, Brian. That was super interesting. So lots to watch next week. But as you say, we're all hoping that the direction is towards peace. Uh, so thank you, Brian, for joining us. And thank you, as always, Jan and Giles, for joining me this week and to our listeners for listening. Just a reminder, if you liked today's episode, please don't forget to hit the like 
button and subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks, see you next week.